supporting human conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they owned by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim Welcome to the Project Censored radio show. I'm your host for this week, Eleanor Goldfield. In this special episode, we connect with two radical frontline fights thousands of miles apart, but deeply connected through their visions and struggles for a livable and just future. First, we sit down with Sasha Lorenz from the Lutzerat Lept movement to discuss the recent literal bulldozing of people's lives for the sake of some 280 million tons of brown coal. Sasha outlines the context of the struggle in Germany's dirty push for more coal amidst greenwashing campaigns and continued capitalist and colonialist enterprises. Next up, Coyote from the Defend Atlanta Forest movement joins the show again to discuss the recent murder of forest defender Manuel Tortuguita Terran, the situation on the ground and in the trees in Atlanta, and both of our guests leave us with messages of real and growing hope, the kind that cannot be stifled by coal ash or murdered by police brutality. All this and more coming up now on Project Censored. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little boys and the weapons manufactured pay for our attacks upon the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens and the times for the master thief combined. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us at the Project Censored radio show. We are very glad right now to be joined by Sasha Lorenz, the spokesperson for the initiative Lutzerat Lipt, which we will get into what that means. But uh, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for reaching out to us. I'm glad to be here. Very glad to have you. Uh, And I wanted to start off with a bit of context, because as with so many things that we discuss on this show, uh, U.S. media has totally avoided this story. So people might be wondering, gosh, what is Lutzerat and what does this mean? Um, and the story takes us to a small town called Lutzerat uh, in the Rhineland region of Western Germany. Uh, for listeners who know and or enjoy geography, despite the uh, best efforts of U.S. schools. Uh, so this village has been at the center of an ongoing struggle against coal in Germany for years, uh, as it stood in the crosshairs of a planned expansion of an existing coal mine, the Garsweiler mine, owned and operated by coal giant RWE. Uh, the planned expansion would give RWE access to some 280 million tons of lignite coal. Uh, and for those listening who aren't familiar with that term. Lignite coal is also known as brown coal. It's a younger coal than what many in the U.S. think of as coal, which is black coal by comparison. Uh, It is softer and you have to burn more lignite coal in order to get the same amount of energy as you would from burning a smaller amount of black coal. So it is more disastrous environmentally, both in the excavation and in the use. Uh, And in mid-January, Environmental organization Indigelende announced that Lutzerat had ultimately been evacuated pending destruction and announced plans to block and disrupt lignite infrastructure in the Rhenish coal field. So with that context, Sasha, and I'm, I'm giving that context because I didn't want to ask you on just to go through the basics of the situation. Uh, I wanted to get more into details about what's happened recently. Uh, why Why now? Uh, it seems like uh, Lutzerat was... Uh, for several years, people were fighting uh, the, the the destruction. Why did this finally happen now after so many years? Yeah, it's true that um, Lützerath has been there for um, yeah two and a half years. People have been building up this little place of resistance um, and have managed actually to build some kind of utopia over there where people are living in solidarity and not following um, this whole logic of capitalists of capitalism as in the rest of our society mainly. Um, however, 
finally there was a deal struck between um, the green ministry of NRW, which is the region where um, also Lützerath is is in, and like the the ministry of economy, as well as Robert Habeck, who is the one of the ministers of the uh, German government, um, also from the Green Party, and lately the manager of RWE, and the agreement was that instead of ending like having the coal phase out in 2038 as it was planned before to have it in 2030 which they tried to put as a as a win for for the climate basically which is in the first place already not true because right now it seems like the same amount of coal will be burned just in a faster pace so it will actually be almost the same amount of coal or even more that will be burned beforehand which considering that we have climate tipping points, it's even worse that we have now this um, amount of coal being burned so fast. But on the other hand side, um, RWE got the permission to uh, destroy Lützerath and take the coal underneath it. Um, and because, yeah, in the short term, um, RWE is actually still making profit with coal, considering that there is a lot of yeah subsidies from the state and some other some other economic thoughts that I can get into if you're interested in why it's still um, profitable for RWE to to actually burn that coal. And so that's why now they were pressing so much to evict this this village. It's another point where you can actually see that the the state is putting capital interests and the profits of um, of huge enterprises over the livelihood of people in the region as well as notably in the global south where thousands of people are already dying from the consequences of the climate crisis. It clearly has global implications. And I I think that some listeners might have tilted their heads a bit when you said it was a deal struck with the Green Party, because particularly in the U.S., I mean, we have a Green Party, but it never really gets anywhere because we have totally rigged elections. But the idea that the Green Party would be supporting a massive coal expansion seems absurd. Uh, what what happened there? I, I mean, what's going on with the Green Party? <laughs> Yeah, it's um, actually quite interesting because also some years ago, there was another forest occupation, the Hambacher Forest. Some people might have heard of it. And at that time, the Green Party was still, um, yeah, on the side of the of the climate activists actually protesting against the eviction and against the destruction. But um, what we can see now is that as soon as they got into the government, um, they had to start making compromises, as they call it. Um, and for us, that makes very clear that in our actual, in our current system, where profit is valued higher than everything el- anything else, um, no party is actually able to um, have a program which is in alignment with the 1.5 degree um, <clears throat> um, yeah, obligation that also Germany signed with the Paris Agreement. And so for us, it became clear that we have to change the system itself and not rely on any party that will, in the end, um, not be able to fight the climate crisis. The system is, is is crooked, not just a political party here and there. And I know you'd mentioned that the economics of the situation, and I am curious about that because I know that in the United States, at least, there are, you know, like oil companies like Exxon are starting to invest in in uh, wind energy and solar energy because they see what's going on. Is RWE doing the same thing, or are they are they pretty much just focused on coal and desperately trying to get all of it they can before twenty thirty? No, they are actually also focusing on on the renewable energies, and they're doing a lot of greenwashing, trying to put themselves as a um, as an enterprise that's actually looking into the future. 
um, and tr trying to be progressive. But what we see at the same time is that um, they are still using coal as a profitable source of um, yeah of gains for their com um, company because we have this energy trading um, like certificates that are traded emission trading system it's a scheme that is working um yeah on on the european level um also on a german one but especially on the european one we saw that the certificates that you had to buy for each ton of co of uh, co2 that you're emitting um they became very expect or pretty expensive recently like they're above uh, 60 euros now but back in the years they were super cheap And because the system is not really well thought through, um, it is possible to buy those certificates and keep them and use them later on. And that's what RWE did. So from some um, some sources inside the company, we actually know that they bought enough certificates um, until the phase out of coal. So they don't have to buy any certificates under the, on the price that is on the market right now. And they got the ones that were still really, really cheap. So for them, they are actually Uh, making a lot of profit, and we just recently got the message that they um, they even had to increase their gain um, forecast, or like their forecast was not as high. I think they made like six billion euros um, gain this year. It's incredible, and that's again a point where we see that um, this company is is using the system and the capitalist logic that we have right now to make as many profits as possible, um, considering that all the negative climate um consequences are not are not in the price they are externalized and it's the people in the global south that are suffering the most on it and i think that yeah this is also a point where litzerat comes in as an important um symbol because we always say that there's two points on, on litzerat the one is like the concrete fight about the tons of coal the millions of tons that are underneath litzerat and that should stay there but it's also um it's also just like um, a point of um, I don't know if you can say crystallization. So it's actually all coming together in the small village where you can see that so many people from all over the world have been have shown their solidarity with it. And we have stand in solidarity with all the fights um, in the global south, notably, that have been ongoing for, for tens of years already. And they are much, um, they are people that have much higher risks um, and, yeah, they are fighting for a long time already. So it's, I think it's really important to also see that we can give um, voices and we can give attention to them because considering our also, um, yeah, the, the racist system that we live in, which makes white lives always seem so much more valuable. Um, and that's why also the attention is so much more on, on places like Lützerath than on the, on the fights in the global south that are happening for such a long time already. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, the whole, the whole concept of paying, I've, I, I always thought is that, that, that was so ridiculous. Like, oh, we're just going to buy these, uh, these tokens that allow us to pollute, like as if the ecosystems give a, mm, whether you paid to pollute there, it's such a bizarre system. And, and of course it's the capitalist system. And uh, as you pointed out, it is racist as well as a, a, a classist system, of course. And I, I kind of wanted to also talk about that because Germany has such great PR uh, in terms of, I mean, at least what we hear of in the US, like, oh, go green like Germany's doing, you know? And there's pictures of 
uh, of you know wind uh, wind energy all over the all over the country and oh Germany's really going green and I think most people would be very surprised to hear that the largest and most polluted coal plants in Europe are in fact in Germany uh, and you know speaking of the, the 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 plan to phase out coal and things like that uh does that really feel to you like it will happen in 2030 or is this just yet another hey we're going to play we're going to put a, a marker here and then once we get there we're going to push it even further like what do you see legitimately happening as uh, as a consequence of living with this system yeah considering the the 2030 coal phase out i do believe that it's happening um also because um a lot of experts already said that or showed that also in a mat, um, in the logic of the market, it will not be um, profitable anymore to use coal. So basically, it's um, yeah, the the deal also that was made is not really a political decision for climate um, protection. It's more like something that would have happened anyways, and something that is um, yeah, also showing me again how two-faced Germany is in a way is that you can see now that there's already a lot of deals that are made for long term with um, states like Qatar to, to get um, gasoline, which is in the end a bit better than um, brown coal, but in the end it's also a climate killer and a polluter. And the same is um, like with other coal mines, for example, um, really huge coal mines in the south of America, um, where we have mines that are um, 30 times as big as the ones in Germany. And now we are planning to, like the government is planning to do deals with, with those countries to get, um, yeah, to get energy again, also from very dirty sources. So I think that we can see that again, it's like a colonial continuity that Germany is um, trying to um, exploit other countries that don't have maybe the means to, um, to resist against this exploitation and then trying to put itself as a as a green country, which is absolutely not true. You're listening to the Project Censored radio show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll now continue our conversation with Sasha Lorenz from Lutzerat Lebt. Yeah, the European offloading of uh, the, the the issues of climate chaos onto onto the global south, even with things like recycling, like, oh, we recycle everything. Well, you shipping it to the global south for them to burn it does not mean that you are a green nation. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is a it, it is a, a colonialist problem that stems from uh, the, the, the advent of colonialism hundreds of years ago. And I'm curious about how people because obviously there were tens of thousands of people who ended up going to Lutzerat uh during the, the the you know the peak of as I understand it of the fight here uh how do people in Germany feel about the what happened at Lutzerat and how do people feel about uh this this shift in energy you know importing things from importing gas from Qatar uh, and things like that what's the what's the What's the uh, temperature like in terms of how people are feeling in Germany? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's quite difficult to say that in general because there's a lot of different opinions, obviously. But some interesting numbers are maybe that there's there was a survey and 59% of the people said that they do not want Lützerath to be destroyed because it was quite clear um, from 
yeah, early times in the discussion that it's not necessary because there were several studies showing that it's not necessary to actually destroy Lützerath and take the coal underneath because there's a lot of other coal around that could be used before, um, even considering that we need the coal to um, continue yeah, producing the way that we're producing and living the way we're living. Um, and then I think that the government used the, the, the fear that was made by, because of the energy crisis that we have, because that was also one of the main arguments why Lützerath has to go is that we need extra energy because of the crisis. However, um, it was also shown that the coal underneath Lützerath would have not even been able to be burned before in two or three years because we still have a lot of um, of saved coal that has to be burned before. So that argument was actually also obsolete. So I think a lot of people actually do not, um, yeah, do not agree with with the destruction of of Lützerath. Um, and what I also think is that what we have to make more clear is that also um, it's also as you already mentioned part of a classist problem because the fact that people are afraid because of their energy bills is also due to to the situation that the energy for the private consumption is much more expensive than for the industry. It's almost, it's more than double the price. And um, because, yeah, the, the industry again is subsidized by the government. And I think that this all again shows the problem that people are actually the ones that have to carry the burden of the government making wrong decisions and not the industry and not the people in the industry that are actually making the profit. Um, so, yeah, I think that that kept in mind, um, people do understand the struggle that was happening in Lützerath to a certain extent, even though the media was trying very hard, especially the mainstream media, to um, show Lützerath as some activists that were radicalized and um, trying to um, withstand the decisions of a democratic government. Um, however, I think that it was, became very clear, especially on the demonstration where over 35,000 uh, 35, people came, is that what the government is, decide, is deciding on at the moment, especially when we look again at the Green Party, um, people do not understand how this is possible because they voted for a Green Party that wanted to um, save like uh, the Paris Agreement and protect the climate, and that's absolutely not happening. So a lot of people actually stand with the activists in Lusserat. And again, what we've also seen is that there were thousands of people that actually left the demonstration and went towards Lützerat in an action of civil disobedience, which has been new that it was so many people from all different parts of the society because they just understood and they wanted to show that what is legal is not necessarily legitimate. And in this case, it was clearly not. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's incredibly powerful. And 35,000 people is remarkable. And I, I, I can just as a an organizer in the US myself, I'm jealous. Um, and I feel like a lot of people listening would probably be jealous too, because it is very difficult to get people out to these uh, to these actions. Uh, of course, they're, these days in the US, they're not really destroying towns like that in in that kind of like uh, overt bulldozing sense. Uh, it's more like destroying them slowly by, by poisoning them or things like that. But um, there's so much division in the US, uh, whether that be class or race or background or, or things like that that are used against us. So it is... Uh, 
it's incredibly powerful to hear that that's going on in Germany. And uh, after, as I understand it, after the the uh, evacuation of Lutzrat happened, uh, there was blockades and disruption at other lignite areas in the Rhenish coal field. Can you talk a little bit about that and perhaps plans for the future in that area or in other coal areas in Germany? Yeah, um, so Ende Gelände, as you already mentioned, as an um, yeah group of uh, activists or an initiative that is trying to block coal for a long time, and now they're also onto um, LNG gas because this is the problem that's going to come towards us in the near future. Um, they were doing some mass um, actions of civil disobedience, um, trying to yeah block the the diggers from from digging the coal in the in the coal mine. Um, and I think that more actions like this are going to happen because in the end, Lützerat was um, was a symbol, was a was a real place, was some kind of utopia that people could live and see and learn from and connect in um, with all the fights all over the world for the time that it was there. And that was super important. Um, however, the coal is still there. So I think that as long as the coal is still there, people will continue resisting and will continue to, to take action. And um, as you mentioned, there's other coal mines in Germany as well, and there have been actions already, and there will be further actions at some point. Um, like in East Germany, for example, there's another huge um, region of coal um, that, yeah, is just as catastrophic. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, at least in the U.S., it feels like a, a, a terrible game of whack-a-mole just trying to get to all of these fights. Um, and so, as I mentioned, finally, I, I would love to hear some insight into, you know, because uh, I, I do believe that a lot of people listening to this show are uh, are trying to figure out ways to mobilize and to, uh, to to get folks involved with these issues wherever they live. How did you how, how do you do outreach in, in places that might have completely different political perspectives or social perspectives uh, to, in order to get people involved in these fights? What what kind of uh, organizing tactics would you recommend? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, because I feel like Lützerath um, was like somehow self-developing, like people in the beginning, people didn't really know about it, but the more it became, um, yeah, a thing in the, I, I think first of all, among the people that are um, climate uh, sensitive, I could say, or that are into the, the whole movement anyways, but then also with the more attention it got, the more um, the media also um, documented what was happening there, the more people just, um, yeah, brought their attention there and realized that it's a very specific situation because um, the fight for those villages has been ongoing for a long time already. And now since five was saved um, by the pressure of the climate activists um, and the one was left that was supposed to to be evicted or that was evicted by now, um, I think that has a, had a huge impact. Um, this feeling of there's this very little village that is still how we're somehow managing to resist and that is yeah as already mentioned that is so much a place where you could actually see how society could work out when people are living in solidarity when everyone is welcome and of course it was not um, a place where everything was working out perfect but it was a place where people were taking the time to to um, handle the conflict that were upcoming and where people actually um, yeah, connected and also did so. There were so many skill shares happening. There was so much knowledge transfer for 
for the movement and for anyone who was coming and just wanted to learn. Um, and I think that, um, again, this was also a reason why in the end it was evicted with so much police. And I think that if you've seen the videos, you cannot even believe what amounts of, of police have been shuttled there. There was like horses and dogs and um, like police from almost all over Germany that came there because I think that the police and the government, they realized that this is like a, a vocal point, um, geographically spoken and also symbolic. Um, of the movement where that had developed so much strength and so much uh, soft power in the way it was like shining to to so many places and also lightening like um, showing the solidarity and showing the meaning of other fights and struggles that were going on that they had to actually um, destroy it because otherwise it would have been really a point where people could meet and where people could 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 uh, organize for more actions um, and that's something that I would just like to mention as well because it didn't come up so far was the fact that i think it was one of the first um or it was not one of the first but it was a really important situation there during the eviction but also after the eviction to see the police violence that was actually happening because um i think that during the demonstration it became very very clear that the police was really um brutal and violent against um demonstration dem dem um like activists and also civil society that was there just with their bodies not being um not having those helmets or the pepper spray or whatever and just with their bodies trying to uh, resist against the eviction of the village and the destruction and the police really came in with their batons and they were beating up people some people like more than a dozen people had to go to hospital because of the police it's incredible and i think that um this was a moment where there was so much mainly white mainly middle class activists and civil society that the media was actually covering the subject more than many times before and it was a moment where it became clear to so many people that it's actually not a single case it's a system a a racist and violent police system that is like a reality for a lot of marginalized groups and um, BIPOC people in society, but most of the time this is invisible. And on this day it became very visible. So I think that we as Le Serrat also want to put more focus and put more attention on these struggles of, of so many groups in Germany that are fighting this police system for also tens of years already. And again, it's the same in, in Europe, if you consider Frontex, that is um, also some kind of police that is um, killing refugees that try to, again, avoid, like flee from, from conflicts that are connected to the climate crisis coming to Europe, being beaten up, and other countries where protests are beaten up by a police. So I think that all this shows together the connection of a racist and violent police in a capitalist system that is protecting the profit of, of, of the few against, yeah, against activists that are trying to go on and, and protect the climate and the livelihood of people. So I think that this is also something that, that came up newly and I think that has a lot of potential to get more people involved and get more struggles connected. Yeah, I just hope that this will, this will keep on, like the, the strength of the movement, I'm pretty sure that it will keep on doing more things and getting more connected to other fights and hopefully also to, to struggles in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, I mean, as part of this, uh, th this is an hour show, the, the Project Censored radio show, uh, and the other half of this show is, is speaking with uh, someone from Defend Atlanta Forest, where, of course, a... Um, 
a forest fender was murdered by police. So, uh, which I believe is the, the first time to my knowledge in, in the U.S. where a forest defender has been murdered by police. And uh, so I think that those connections are important to make because it's clear that police violence is escalating perhaps more quickly in the U.S. But uh, I think that's a great, uh, great point, as you mentioned uh, uh, as well, the idea of organizing you know, not just reaching out to climate folks, but, you know, making sure that people that are just your neighbors or just somebody that, you know, from the store or something like that, like uh, all of these people are are clearly impacted. So uh, and and the skill shares that you mentioned, I think these are powerful ways to connect people and welcome people, regardless of where they might be coming from socially or politically or what have you. Uh, so, Sasha, thank you so much. I mean, there's so many different places we could go with this, but uh, is there anything else that you'd like to mention that maybe I didn't uh, already ask? I think that maybe I would just um, like to 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 mention again or to to stress again the positive outcome of it as well, because I think that many of us are focusing very much on the violence that happened, of the destruction that is happening. And I think that is super important to actually look at that, because again, also the media is not picking up on it so much. Um, and if you look at the media in Germany, you will you will hear from violence of activists against the police all over and very little about the violence of the police against the activists. But despite all those negative and very frustrating facts, um, I was really surprised by the strength that I experienced in the movement and also by all the new people that came and were there, experienced what happened and went back home and are now really motivated to to get active and to politically like so many people were politicized and i think that this is something new and it made me quite optimistic that much more will be possible in the future and this is just like our this fight is just a little part of of all the struggles worldwide but it's also just the start of an ongoing fight in germany and i really think that yeah we have a world to win you're listening to the Project Censored radio show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break, so stay with us. Girl, oh, how I cry, how I cry, how I cry. You don't miss your water till your well runs dry. I kept you Thank you so much for joining us at this uh, special episode of Project Censored. We are very glad to be joined again by Coyote, a member of the Defend Atlanta Forest. And uh, we had Coyote on the show a while ago to discuss the struggle against Cop City. But for those who didn't already listen to that, I'll give you some backstory real quick. Uh, it's called Cop City because it refers to the Atlanta Police Foundation's $90 million police military compound, the largest police facility in the U.S. Uh, if it were to be built, which would potentially stretch across a full 381 acres. The facility is specifically designed to train police in, quote unquote, crowd control and urban warfare tactics and would include a fake city replicating city blocks and buildings, a so-called shoot house where cops can practice shooting civilians, 
uh, plus dozens of shooting ranges, a Black Hawk helicopter pad, and a bomb detonation range, among other things. Uh, and this struggle has been ongoing for quite some time, but on January 18th, it escalated in a deadly, deadly and grotesque way when police murdered a forest defender, Manuel Tortuguita Tehran. And the irony of police murdering a forest defender so that they can clear cut the forest and learn more efficient ways to kill people is, I'm sure, not lost on folks listening. Um, and as of the recording of this show, six forest defenders are still in jail, having been denied bail. And as I understand it, there are up to 20 facing terrorism charges after the violent uh, attack by police on January 18th. And Coyote, I wanted to start with this, uh, if we could, because there was recently an image shared by Stephen Donziger, the environmentalist lawyer, showing an affidavit that claims a forest defender was committing domestic terrorism because he was occupying a treehouse. Mm-hmm. Uh can you talk about these absolutely absurd charges and what forest defenders are facing after this violent attack on January 18th? Yeah, of course. Uh, many. So there was an initial raid in December where five people were charged with domestic terrorism for being in tree houses. And then there were two subsequent raids in January, the second of which was the one where Tortiquita was killed by the police. And after the first raid, then people who were arrested on the ground were also charged with domestic terrorism. And to give people an idea of the stakes of a domestic terrorism charge, um, if you are found guilty of domestic terrorism, you can be in prison for up to 35 years. So the law itself is very vague. And the way that it's being interpreted is that because the forest defenders are on this land preventing a, uh, tr- in order to protest the building of the cop of cop city, they're considered domestic terrorists because they're preventing the construction of a government, a necessary government facility. So like the domestic terrorism law was initially conceived of in order to, um, as something to charge people who were, for example, perpetrators of mass shootings or people who were attacking critical infrastructure like um, water treatment plants or these kinds of things, right? So in this interpretation, um, the critical infrastructure is Cop City rather than something that might actually be critical infrastructure like a water treatment plant. Um, And the thing that they're doing to prevent it is simply just being on the land, right? So if it were not for these domestic terrorism charges, the most that they could get these people for would be maybe a misdemeanor of trespassing, right? And the land that many of the people were arrested on isn't even the land that the APF owns. It's the land that is um, owned by Ryan Millsap. Uh, that's um, east of the river that actually is still in court about whether or not it's a public park because there was a legally disputed land swap. So the the domestic terrorism charges are are pretty broad and they're very concerning. Um, And from the perspective of many of the people who are involved with the movement and and many others, it's a largely uh, political choice, you know, by calling people domestic terrorists rather than protesters, um, it makes it easy to deny any of the things that they are requesting by saying like, okay, we're not going to um, negotiate with terrorists. And it makes it easier to quell 
any sort of dissent because you're going to frighten everyone because nobody wants to go to prison for the rest of their life. And it makes it easier for them to like garner public support because once you start talking about terrorists, people on the right um, can get very incensed. And once somebody's a terrorist, they're going to be a terrorist for those people. Um, we've had we've had some lawyers from an organization called the CLDC come to talk to us about these charges. And it seems like a lot of lawyers and the National Lawyers Guild is involved in running our jail support right now. And so a lot of people are, um, are helping, some members of it are helping our jail support. And so a lot of lawyers are thinking that the charges aren't going to hold up. And oftentimes with land defense um, like this, like when they give people these huge charges, um, they're kind of throwing the book at everyone in order to freak everyone out. But then the court case will like go on for a very long time and eventually the charges will be dropped or they won't be able to get anyone on the charges. So it, it's partially like a bluster thing um, in order to freak people out. And which is normal, which is part of like how the court functions in all of like in all cases, you know, giving people like the worst possible charge they can imagine in order to scare them and convince them to take a plea deal. Um, and that's pretty normal. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It is terrifying. And I can only imagine how it feels for those caught in, in, in those crosshairs. But I do appreciate you giving that context for how the system tries to scare people off uh, from getting involved in these fights. Because as we talked about the last time that you were on the show, y'all were doing such incredible work, uh, including the community in, you know, fun actions and fun events and things that really highlighted the diversity of the community and the diversity of the forest and what a forest can be in a community space. Uh, yeah. And so that kind of that kind of inclusion and solidarity is terrifying uh, to the powers that be. And I was curious what the situation is now in that space, in that forest and in the proposed cop city uh, in general. Well, the um, events have still been happening in the forest. So that's something that, that's been really like heartening. Um, we, we're doing weekly uh, potlucks and food distribution in the forest. Um, and that hasn't stopped. So every Wednesday we're still doing these like potlucks and people are coming in. People have come in to like help clean the forest because when the police ran their, ran their raid, they just totally trashed it. Like they don't, they, like they left the trash everywhere and, and like, you know, destroyed tents and these kinds of things, ripped open sleeping bags so that the stuffing went everywhere. So there were people who like, there are people who are going out and doing that kind of thing. Um, right now, today, like at right at this moment, they're doing a children's walk. So some local preschools are going out and they're walking around in the woods. It's kind of hard for the government to like really respond because no matter how many people they get, like there's still people who are ready to like continue resisting. It is a little bit more difficult now. There's been a lot larger police presence. And um, also Brian Kemp declared like a state of emergency where he essentially gets like dictatorial powers where his word is law and he can call, call the National Guard. And so there was like, you know, there's some photos going around of like the National Guard in Atlanta. And so there are fewer people staying in the woods now. Um, there might still be some people in trees, but I don't personally know that because everyone who is in the woods 
is being very secretive about it because they don't want to get arrested. They don't want to get pursued or targeted by the government. And so, yeah, it's kind of, it's becoming a little bit more intense in terms of like defense actions, but community actions are still happening. Have, have the National Guard gone in and has there been any hostilities on their part or you just, they're just in Atlanta at the request of Kemp? They're in Atlanta at the request of Kemp. They haven't gone into the woods itself. There were also the protests about um, the Tyree Nichols video that, that was released. And I think that after everything that happened with Tortuguita, where that cop car was lit on fire and all that stuff, um, part of the reason why the National Guard was called was like because Brian Kemp was worried that something was going to happen with was wanting to respond like preemptively to like the Tyree Nichols protests. So I think that the National Guard is spending more of their time in town um, rather than at the woods itself. You know, I think that if there if an encampment like the ones that existed prior to the raids, like came back into the woods, we might see National Guard go into the forest. And I think that a lot of people are aware of that. So, but we have, we have, we have nothing but time, you know, the, their permits have not gone through and he can only call the National Guard until February 9th unless he gets some kind of extension, so. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about the timeline as well. Because it, as I understand it, some parts of the forest have already been destroyed, uh, and I, so I'm curious what what is left, and uh, what what do you feel is the timeline in terms of like do they have a deadline like we need to get construction rolling by this date or what's the what's the feeling there? Mo- uh, most of the forest is not destroyed, thankfully. Some uh, the the parking lot on the eastern side of the forest that Wilani's people's Wilani People's Park, um, that parking lot and the path from that parking lot into the woods, which is a concrete path, um, those were destroyed. And a small portion of the forest was clear cut and another small portion of the forest, they cleared the the underbrush, the under the undergrowth. So the, um, but then stop work orders were put in place and that was, that was stopped. Um, in terms of the timeline of when they want to start um, building i think at this point now they're six months behind on their timeline so they're already really far behind and i think that they keep telling their investors that they're going to start like in the spring of this year but dekalb county so far has not approved any of their work permits because of the fact that if they were to begin construction a whole bunch of silt was would, would go into the waterway and so the, um, and already like some of the construction that happened on in the Ryan Millsap portion, the portion that, that the conflict is with Ryan Millsap rather than Cop City, um, the very small amount of destruction that he did already has had effects on the water. So the fact that that's going on, I think is going to make it more difficult for them to get permits. But unfortunately, Brian Kemp is really pushing DeKalb County to, to give the permits. And also, like we have to, you have to recall that, like this land is in unincorporated DeKalb County, so it's not Atlanta itself. So it's a different entity that has to give the permits to the Atlanta Police Foundation. So, and we know that the majority of the people in DeKalb County don't want the don't want Comp City, or at least in the surrounding neighborhoods. So, 
whether or not that will impact how quickly they can get these permits, we don't really know. You know. You mentioned the the, the uh, neighborhoods surrounding, and you also mentioned the the Tyree Nichols protests, and of course. This is a, a facility that, if it were built, would teach cops how to more effectively kill people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, in the United States, that is predominantly black men mm-hmm. and uh, non-white members of the community. So I'm also curious, have these time-aligned tragedies, have these brought more people in support of what uh, y'all are doing to stop Cop City? Has there been these connections uh, being made by members of the the, the surrounding communities? Mm-hmm. Well, people who have organized vigils around the country have been putting solidarity statements about Tortuguita and about Tyree Nichols, but I I don't I don't really know whether or not it's good to speculate about how those different pieces of news like impacted each other. You're listening to the Project Censored radio show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll now continue our conversation with Coyote from Defend Atlanta Forest. I do know, for example, that the, the police chief in Memphis, originally, who was in charge of those officers, originally was working in Atlanta and then was fired from the police department in Atlanta because of covering up a case that had to do with the husband of another police officer and was in charge of something called the Red Dog Group in the police that was known for being like particularly violent. And so this is not just an issue that is just about Atlanta. You know, this was an Atlanta police officer who was in charge of the officers that were involved in the Tyree Nichols case. There's that. And then there's also the fact that like there were some documents that were released about the police foundation from the police foundation about the facility where they said that they wanted 43% of their trainees to come from out of state. Um, And so, you know, the whole purpose of this facility is to train officers from all over the country. And we already have this kind of like violent policing culture in Atlanta you know, what happened with Tortuguita and what happened with Tyree Nichols are both symptoms of the same problem. It's the same sort of group of people that it's a job that attracts people who want to exert power over other people and who are willing to do so violently. And so, yeah, I don't know about the news, but I do know that they are, uh, that they are problems that are similar to each other and that are on the same page, you know. Uh, I think I think this I think something that was quite different from the two is that um, what's been going on in Atlanta has been the officers have been pointing machine guns at people in trees for months. You know, like in previous raids, they've pointed machine guns at people who are up in the tree. They've been heard on scanners asking if they can live fire at the protesters. So the officers in the case in the forest were really. Um, they were looking for uh, an excuse to use their guns. We don't know truly what happened, but we do know that the group that were sent in to do to do the raid and the group the group that ultimately shot Tortuguita were the one of the only police forces in the state that aren't required to wear body cams. And we can only like speculate whether or not that was intentional. So it's it's just more evidence, I think, that with what happened with Tyree. Nichols and what happened with Tortuguita are just both pieces of evidence that show that like police brutality is not 
a matter of like individual instances that are a problem. It's a matter of like an institution that is rotten to to the core. Like when you look at like how the police officers are, how the police are rewarded in Atlanta, right? And how they're run, they have a point system. So based on like what you do, you get different points. And so like, if you answer a service call, right, you get half a point. But if you arrest a juvenile on the street, you get five points. So there's like 10 times the reward to, you know, there's 10 times the incentive for arresting a juvenile. Whatever the juvenile was doing, you know, even if they weren't really harming anybody compared to like answering a service call that where somebody actually wants the police officer to come. Yeah, no, I think that that's an important thing to highlight. Um, I remember discussing this with uh, former police captain Ray Lewis, who uh, was at a lot of Occupy um, encampments in his full like captain's outfit and also went to Black Lives Matter protests. And the, the Fraternal Order of Police tried to get his pension taken away from him. Because he talked about these issues and he talked about how police are given empathy tests and if they score too high, they're not allowed to go to the police academy. Uh, And he talked about how police are rewarded for being brutal. Um, And so I I did want to pick up on something that you mentioned. Uh, Was live ammunition actually used in in the forest that day or were people accosted violently by, you know, less than lethal, which can, of course, be lethal rounds like rubber bullets and things like that? In the day that Tortuguita was shot, yeah, Tortuguita was was. I mean, they were using they had guns and they shot Tortuguita with live ammunition. the The rest of the people who were in the in the forest um, were primarily like assaulted with um, rubber bullets, pepper balls, um, rubber bullets and pepper balls. They're like, so they they didn't use guns on everybody, you, you know, like it was like SWAT and, and these kinds of things. And there were people who were hurt um, in the raid, uh, but it was a lot of police officers. No one else was shot or shot at, to my knowledge, but that was, they, they were they were mostly using other like crowd control techniques. It, it's sort of painful or like difficult to talk about, but... It just seems like the police force, just from what we've heard on the scanners and from what we've seen, is not really like trying to protect the populace. They're like looking for excuses to be able to do the most violent things that they can legally do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know that uh, one of the one of the reasons that I wanted to invite you on here was because the police also control the narrative because media is uh, owned and operated by the uh, the corporate overlords who like police protection so uh this is and and it, of course with that cops lie it is actually like that's part of their job description to to lie and uh Stephen Donziger again shared um another uh, another post that talked about how the Atlanta police had claimed that DHS had said that these uh, forest defenders were domestic terrorists, and then DHS confirmed to the Washington Post that they never said any such thing. Um, and if the Atlanta police are 
if they're lying about that, what else are they lying about? And so with that, as we wrap up here, uh, Coyote, I also want to ask, since this is a platform that is for censored perspectives and frontline perspectives, what else would you like to share? Well, in regard to Tortuguita's death, and I think that this is kind of a story that has that has been going around, and so people may have seen this already, but gun that was submitted as evidence of this is the gun that Tortuguita owned, and they and Tortuguita used this to shoot the officer. The gun wasn't found until like hours after Tortuguita had been shot, right? And it's this kind of like well, framed picture next to the cigarette butts or whatever, and blah, blah, blah. And so there are a lot of, um, in Atlanta, and if you go to the Community Movement Builders page, you can find an explanation of these of these cases, right? There are many cases where police officers have entered a home, right, that they're not supposed to be in. And in one case, a dog, like came out and startled the police officers. Um, the police officers freaked out, killed the person and shot each other. Like there were multiple cases where there was friendly fire. When the uh, officer down thing came out, when people heard officer down on the, on the, sp- on the scanners, people uh, like the organizers mostly thought that it was uh that it was probably a case of friendly fire. So I think the the story that, that that's currently going around is that Tortuguita randomly shot at one of these officers and then they all shot Tortuguita, right? We don't really know what happened. And I do think that like there's this, this pattern of lying and the police are always going to frame the story in whatever way allows them to get out of being in trouble. There definitely needs to be some kind of independent investigation, but we should know that Tortuguita is on record saying that nonviolent action is what is what really works, and that everything that Tortuguita was doing was because they were truly trying to protect their neighbors and truly trying to protect the planet, and really were very passionate about what they believed in, and we shouldn't allow them to have died in vain, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I ask this understanding that these are very rough times, but also because the other guest on on this on this episode, uh, Sasha uh, from Germany discussing Lutzerat, made a point at the end. She said that she wanted to make sure that people understood that there was a lot of hope coming from this demolished town. And and so I, I wanted to ask a similar question to you. I mean, do you have hope at the moment for this uh, for this movement, but also for the larger movement of forest defense and defending neighbors and ultimately ending police violence? Yeah, I, I do actually have hope. When, when, when there was the summit and some of the Muskogee spiritual leaders and elders came and spoke to us, right? What they talked about was that what was necessary wasn't just stopping this facility from being built and preventing the forest from being destroyed, but a cultural shift in people, a shift in our values, a shift in how we see each other and how we see other living things. They talked about the importance of like seeing the trees, the plants and the animals as our relatives, right? And protecting them as we would protect our relatives. And when I see how indigenous voices are 
being centered in a lot of media and I see things like what's going on in, with Lutzerov. Um, there were vigils in solidarity with Tortuguita in South America and in Europe and in Palestine and all across the United States. Like many content, like it was an international thing. The, the anarchist phone tree extends so far. You can open a slingshot planner and you can find groups of people like all over the world. Like if you need housing and, and you can't rent, let's find you a squat. If you need food, like there's a food, not bombs. You know, if you need medicine, you know, there are street medics or there are alternative forms of care. Like the masses are all in this place where I think that we're learning to be self-sufficient. So that makes me feel optimistic. We want to smash, crash, blast, smash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. We want to make it clear, we ain't scared. This is the vision we want. We want, we want, we want, we want, we want, we want, we want. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Citizens and the times for the master thief, goodbye and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love.